This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Haunted House If you haven't figured it out by now, we here at the Word of the Week enjoy Halloween. We're not fanatical about it. We were never goths in high school. We never painted our nails black and wore the latest Nightmare Before Christmas fashions from Spencer's Gifts. We didn't go participate in the weekend-long celebrations of the macabre here in our little hometowns. But we do like Halloween. Carving pumpkins? Fun. Fake spiderwebs and wooden tombstones with funny epitaphs on the lawn? Yes. Evening hay rides and corn mazes? Oh, yeah. And of course, haunted houses. We love ourselves a good haunted house. Or even a lousy haunted house. Haunted houses can be a lot of fun. We were reminded recently of haunted houses, and not just in the context of Halloween coming and the need to come up with five scripts related to ghosts, haunts, and spooks. We were reminded of them in the D&D context. Earlier this year, Wizards of the Coast released the latest giant hardcover super adventure module for Dungeons and Dragons, Ghosts of Saltmarsh. Well, we say module. It's actually a kind of anthology, a collection of updates of older adventure modules for older editions of D&D and from various years. There's the Styes, Salvage Operation, and Tumorot's Fate from 3rd edition era Dungeon Magazine published throughout the 2000s. The basic D&D module Isle of the Abbey from a 1992 Dungeon Magazine issue. And, of course, the three modules that started the whole Saltmarsh thing. The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh, Danger at Dunwater, and The Final Enemy. Those are the so-called Saltmarsh Trilogy. Now, the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh and the trilogy of adventure modules that spawned back in 1981 were actually pretty important in the grand scheme of D&D history. See, at the time, Dungeons & Dragons was growing in popularity, and Gary Gygax and his company TSR was looking to expand into overseas markets. Gary was a grassroots kind of guy. His approach to reaching new markets was to partner with people in those communities to distribute TSR products. And when it came time to get the D&D brand into the British Isles, TSR partnered with a company called Games Workshop. Founded by Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, the other Steve Jackson, who had made an early name for themselves with a series of choose-your-own-adventure-style books known as the Fighting Fantasy series, Games Workshop started off in 1975, humbly selling painted wooden boards for chess and other games. Once they partnered to distribute Dungeons & Dragons, their operations began to grow, and eventually they got big enough that Gygax wanted to merge them with TSR and make them their distribution wing in the United Kingdom. But Games Workshop had other ideas. See, in addition to distributing Dungeons & Dragons, they were printing their own gaming fan magazine. They were also involved in publishing games from other companies for the UK market. Games like Call of Cthulhu, Traveler, RuneQuest, and the Middle-Earth role-playing game. And they'd even invested in the company that made miniatures, Citadel Miniatures. They didn't want to become an arm of TSR and limit their options. And so the merger fell through and TSR had to find a new way to get their products into the UK. Enter Donald Joseph Turnbull. He was a maths teacher. Notice we said maths because he was British. 
but had a passion for gaming and he'd designed several games that had earned him some renown and a few awards in the wargaming community. He also published a gaming fan magazine called Albion. And it was to Don Turnbull that Gygax turned to head up the new TSR UK Limited. But Turnbull wasn't interested in just importing or republishing existing TSR materials. He and his crew were designers and creators at heart, and they wanted to create content that would suit the unique needs of the UK market. Like putting the U back in armor. No, seriously. See, after they proved themselves by publishing the well-received Fiend Folio, TSR UK and Don Turnbull followed it with the first ever British Dungeons and Dragons module written by Brits for Brits. And it even says that in the preface. The sinister secret of Saltmarsh begins with a preface from Turnbull himself, beaming with pride over the module and warning American gamers that they might find some linguistic and cultural oddities in the module due to its Britishness. Because it was British, you know. Now, the sinister secret of Saltmarsh followed several conventions that had been established in modules before. It presented a little town to use as a home base, though if you're looking for any background info on Saltmarsh, you won't find much. Second, it built on the success of a very popular tournament module from 1977 known as Tegel Manor. Now, Tegel Manor was a pretty interesting module itself for its day. See, it was not your typical dungeon crawl, which was the standard format for modules back then. Instead of wandering from disconnected room to disconnected room, fighting through a grab bag of challenges in an underground labyrinth, the heroes wandered from disconnected room to disconnected room, fighting through a grab bag of challenges in a totally above-ground haunted manor house. And it was just as weird and silly as anything that came before. Why were there zombies following the orders of a giant rat in a cape and a hat? What did that mouseketeer and his zombie horde have to do with anything? Who knows? Certainly not us. But Saltmarsh was different. Apart from having unnecessary use in various words and being very British indeed, it was also about a haunted house that wasn't really haunted. Oh yeah, uh, uh spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. See, in the first of the module's two parts, the heroes were tasked with exploring and de-ghosting a very haunted house that the locals won't go anywhere near. Except, it turns out that the house is actually being used by smugglers, and they are faking the haunting to keep the locals away. It was basically an episode of Scooby-Doo. Oh, those wacky Brits. The haunted house thing was just a ruse, just a distraction. Now, of course, when we're talking about haunted houses in this context, we're talking about haunted houses for fun and profit. Which, to be fair, was precisely why players explored Saltmarsh and why TSR UK published it, and, for that matter, why the smugglers were faking a haunting anyway. The idea of presenting a scary story about a house occupied with wayward spirits and creatures of the night for fun and profit is nothing new. In fact, the very first recorded story of a haunted house dates back to sometime around the end of the first century CE. And it was written by Gaius Plinius Cecilius Secundus, better known as Pliny the Younger, which was to distinguish him from his uncle Pliny the Elder. Now, we've talked about Pliny the Elder before. You remember 
The famous Roman soldier, statesman, attorney, and natural scientist who compiled his natural history and thus populated about half the D&D monster manual with strange and totally real beasts that really existed, really. Well, Pliny the Younger was his nephew, and honestly, it's easy to get the two confused because Pliny the Younger was also a soldier, attorney, and statesman. But he didn't write an ancient Roman version of fantastic beasts and where to find them. Nope, he was big into writing letters, and he compiled his private letters in nine books, and those letters have proven to be a fascinating and invaluable look at day-to-day life in turn-of-the-first-century Rome, and Pliny seemed to know exactly what he was doing. See, the letters are pretty carefully composed. Each focuses on a single subject, and each is written in a slightly different writing style to fit the subject. And that's not just us editorializing. Pliny himself explained how he composed these letters. He was very proud of them. See, at the time, the composition of Literae Curiosius Scriptae was all the rage among the wealthy. That means letters written especially carefully, and Pliny developed the composition into an art. Anyway, in amongst all of the various bits of social, political, and literary criticism and words of advice and wisdom and the prosaic descriptions of the natural world and matters of finance of the management of his estate, there's also a story about a haunted house. And it's the sort of story about a haunted house that would be completely familiar to any modern moviegoer. Pliny presents the whole thing as a sort of weird but maybe true thing. And he prefaces it by wondering about the existence of ghosts and whether the whole experience he's about to recount may be real. And he mentions a friend of his who had an encounter with a ghost one time. And then he launches into a story. It's the story of a house in Athens, an unoccupied house with a bad reputation that was going for cheap and a skeptical traveler who was happy to rent the house, and who wasn't scared of no ghost. And you know what happens next. Weird noises, rattling chains, and then finally, an angry ghost. And the man runs away. And it turns out the house has been the site of some sort of grisly murder, and the body has been buried under the basement. Honestly, we're rushing through the story because it's basically every haunted house story ever. It's practically most of the plot of the 1982 Spielberg film Poltergeist, except with more togas and less Native Americans and scary clown marionettes. And Poltergeist wasn't even the first big haunted house film. There were decades worth of haunted house films predating that one, even though it was pretty great. There were plenty of classics, like 13 Ghosts in 1960, The House on Haunted Hill in 1959, The Uninvited in 1944, and many, many, many more. We could probably fill a whole episode just listing movies about haunted houses, and books, and stories, going all the way back to 100 CE and Pliny the Younger. But even though we don't have enough time to talk about every haunted house movie ever made, we do have to mention one that stands out from most of the rest— Not because it spawned a book and movie franchise that is still gaining new entries to this very day, despite it having been released 40 years ago, but because of the supposed truth and the very real controversy around the whole story. Let's talk about the Amityville Horror franchise. 
a story which hits particularly close to home for those of us of the Word of the Week team who lived on Long Island in New York and therefore lived basically down the proverbial street from a supposedly totally real and world-renowned haunted house. Of course, most people know about the Amityville horror films. To date, there have been over 20 films released in the franchise, including remakes, sequels, prequels, theatrical releases, television movies, and direct-to-videotape or DVD or streaming service of your choice releases. But the franchise starts with the release of the film The Amityville Horror, directed by Stuart Rosenberg and starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. It was made on a budget of under $5 million. Those are $1979 and made almost $90 million at the box office, which makes it pretty dang successful. In fact, at the time, and for a long time thereafter, it had the distinction of being the most successful film ever made by an independent studio. In the film, George and Kathy Lutz are a pair of young newlyweds who purchase a home at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, and call on the family's Catholic priest, Father Delaney, to bless their new home. Like you do. The blessing does not go well, and Delaney is cursed with odd supernatural occurrences, including being hounded by swarms of insects, developing strange illnesses, and having his palms seared and blistered by unknown means. The couple continues to have terrible experiences in the home as well. They discover a secret room in the basement, and after opening it, a disembodied voice demands they get out. Kathy's children, from her prior marriage, and George himself are affected in various ways, as is the family dog. It gets pretty bad. Eventually, George's research turns up that the land might have once been used by Native Americans of the nearby Chinookok tribe as a burial ground, or perhaps a place where they abandoned their insane to die. And later, it was used by a Satanist to conduct terrible rituals. Oh, and also, the house was the site of a grisly murder five years before. So this house had pretty much every imaginable reason to be very extremely incredibly ridiculously haunted. And it's all true. Well, some of it is all true. And the rest of it is supposedly true. Except for the parts that were changed slightly for poetic license. And the parts that were just made up completely. See, the film The Amityville Horror was based on a book, The Amityville Horror, written by Jay Anson and published in 1977. And the book relates mostly the same story. And both the book and the film have been the source of numerous controversies and even lawsuits since that date. And that's because of the claim that the entire story is true. The story of the Amityville House starts in 1974, when a troubled young man named Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six of his family members in their sleep, and then, ultimately, confessed to the murders. After killing his family, Ron DeFeo entered a nearby bar and asked for help because his parents had been shot. At that point, he didn't confess to the murder. Obviously, the police were called. They investigated and found some oddities in the deaths, 
such as the fact that all of the family members had remained comfortable in their beds despite the noise of rifle shots going off in other rooms, and the fact that some of the children appeared to have been awake when they were shot and put up no resistance. The inconsistencies led the police to doubt DeFeo's story that a mafia hitman had taken out the family. Under questioning, DeFeo broke and admitted to carrying out the crimes himself and provided the police with numerous details about the event that corroborated his confession. He said that once he had started the act, he couldn't stop himself. Due to substance abuse problems and diagnosed mental illnesses, DeFeo's attorney tried to raise an insanity defense, but DeFeo was convicted of murder in the second degree and is currently still serving out six consecutive life sentences in the Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York. That's all true. It really happened. In December of 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and Kathy's three children moved into the DeFeo's old house at 112 Ocean Avenue. This also really happened. And further, the couple really did abandon the house just a month later in January of 1976, leaving all of their possessions behind. And they never went back. The Lutzes later reported everything from demonic figures associating with their young daughter, to mysterious smells and sounds, to furniture and decorations around the house being suspiciously moved to new locations. But, while we're on the subject of things that really did happen, a book editor at Prentice Hall was intrigued by the couple's tale of having been frightened out of their home by terrible supernatural events and wanted to buy their story. And that editor introduced the couple to Jay Anson, the author who would write the story. The Lutzes agreed to share their story, but they didn't work directly with Anson. Instead, they tape-recorded everything they could recall about their four-week experience at the house, 35-plus hours of recordings in all, and handed them over to Anson. And then Anson wrote the book, and then the book became a movie, and then the movie and the book became successful franchises. Oh, and there is one other thing that really did happen. They really did consult with the priest during their stay at the house, and they really did try to get the priest's advice on how to deal with evil spirits living in the house. And we know that, because the priest did eventually come forward. For a long time, he tried to keep his identity quiet, but he, Father Pecoraro, as he was named in the book, gave one interview regarding the Amityville events. He did it on a documentary television series that investigated numerous paranormal events called In Search Of, a series that was hosted by Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek fame, and whose recent revival is hosted by Zachary Quinto, who played young Leonard Nimoy in the J.J. Abrams remake of Star Trek. The series enjoyed a great deal of popularity due to Nimoy's involvement, and Nimoy even wrote a few episodes himself, including an interesting one about whether mad artist Vincent Van Gogh was really as mad as they say. But we digress. Jay Anson and the Lutzes have been accused of a lot as a result of the Amityville horror. The Lutzes were accused of making the whole thing up as a massive hoax to get rich or gain popularity. There were even lawsuits and countersuits between Ron DeFeo's attorney and the Lutzes over the hoax, with a lot of weird and nefarious motives assumed. It's been a very ugly case, 
and one author, John G. Hones, has been researching the whole matter doggedly and adding more and more books to the whole franchise. It should be noted, though, that whatever may or may not have happened in Amityville, it is very unlikely the Lutzes had anything nefarious in mind when the incident happened. They never sought publication of this story. They were approached. And while they did earn royalties from the books and movies, they never made very much. They were plagued by financial and personal difficulties for years, and they divorced in the late 1980s. Moreover, until their deaths, Kathy's in 2004 and George's in 2006, they never once went back on their story or added to it, or embellished it, or changed it in any way, or got caught in any lies. Granted, their story was a lot less detailed than what Anson's book presented, but then, poetic license. So who knows? The point is, the whole affair was neither fun nor profitable for the Lutzes, though a number of authors and filmmakers did make out pretty well from it. But speaking of the fun and profit in haunted houses, have you ever wondered when and how the tradition of actual haunted houses got started? Like, who set up the first haunted house-type attraction that you could tour for a bit of spine-tingling, cathartic fun while someone else made a profit? Well, we found ourselves wondering exactly that, and it turns out that the first popular haunted houses weren't really established for fun and profit. They were established to stop teenagers from destroying property. Seriously. See, the celebration of Halloween came to the United States mostly by way of England and Ireland. And we've talked about the history of Halloween in Europe before. But what happened in the 1840s was that there was a massive famine, the Irish potato famine, in Europe. And huge numbers of Irish settlers came to the United States. And they brought their Halloween traditions of wearing masks and carrying effigies and begging for pennies with them. And bonfires. Because after 1606, a bunch of other stuff got rolled into Halloween because Catholic radical Guy Fox was executed for conspiring to blow up Parliament to end Protestant rule in England. But that's another story. Anyway, Halloween became a pretty big thing in Irish communities after that in the United States, and the celebrations continued to grow and they started to include other aspects like minor pranks and mischief. But then, in the late 1920s and beyond, the economy of the United States and most of the world kind of collapsed and everyone was doing pretty badly. No one had any money, and teenagers had nothing to do. And so the minor pranks started to escalate into vandalism, and then even into hilarious pranks like physical assault and battery. That happened! Various communities struggled to find organized events for young people, especially on Halloween, because they were becoming so destructive. One organized event was communal trick-or-treating events. Yes, that's how community trick-or-treating actually got started in the U.S. Another event, geared for older kids, involved different members of the community decorating their cellars with spooky props and wearing creepy costumes. Kids could go from house to house and tour the scary basement setups and do their best not to get scared to prove how cool they were, while others did their best to scare them, and thus, no one had to be physically assaulted. And that's it. Or at least that would have been it. Sure, some people notched it up a little, and built year-round, standalone haunted houses to tour. But they weren't big or popular. But then, 
One of the best profiteers in American history realized that the tradition of scary props and spooky setups could be serious fun and bring in serious profit. So in 1969, Walt Disney opened the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland in Anaheim, California. A few years later, haunted houses were everywhere. Because Disney knew what Turnbull and TSR UK knew. There can be a lot of fun and a lot of profit in faking a haunting if you do it right. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.